Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. With their Istanbul lab undergoing strange transformations, Paul and his scientist friends struggle to make sense of it all in part two of the story, Uniform. I stood there, staring at the shoelace, Kyung doing likewise. I could swear it was thinner and harder than I remembered, longer too, but it was that glow that made it supremely spooky. And here I'd had it in my pocket earlier that afternoon, next to my best friend. Guess I could count kids on my future. Holy smokes, do you see that? Yeah. Hey, Kyung, you feel odd at all? Maybe it's that things glow, but suddenly I'm feeling kind of queasy. Paul. I saw Riza suddenly slump against one of the machines. She careened toward the ground, and I ran to catch her. Before I could get there, though, she hit the table hard, falling on her side. Mince was beside her instantly. Her breath sped in and out like a roller coaster, and I gathered her in my arms. I was suddenly glad the glass was missing from the windows outside. That's all I could think of, getting her fresh air. I scooped her up and helped her into the hall, mints tailing us. The cold hit me like the air from a butcher's freezer. Thankfully, the lights were still on near the entrance. The rest were out now, even the lamp over Kyung's desk. I walked past the emptied windows till I reached the couch next to the front door and laid Riza across it, slipping on another puddle in the process. I pulled her up and propped one of the cushions under her head as mints jumped up beside her, worried, nudging her and whimpering. Her face had softened somehow, the little girl emerging, vulnerable, scared, so different than the little computer-throwing volcano I'd come to know and love. This was the flip side, the girl I cared for just as much, the child, the innocent, the woman who never ordered lamb because she refused to eat anything quote-unquote cute. Reese's breathing grew deeper, more regular, color livening her face as she blinked a couple times and gripped my hand. It had me breathing a little easier, too. Feeling better? I'll be okay. That's my girl. Want some water? Mmm, I'd rather have a cigarette. They're in my purse. Can you get them for me? Uh-huh, in a sec. I'll get them myself, then. <sighs> Just sit back, sweetie. You can't tell me what to do. Sure I can. Doesn't mean you'll listen, though. Now lay down. I'll get the cigarettes for you. <laughs> I thought you didn't like me smoking. I don't, but I love you a lot more than I dislike the cigarettes. Plus, I think you could use one right now. As I fumbled about in her purse, I realized something. The wall was still rose-colored here, not the strange dandelion yellow of the others. The framed photo overhead still had its protective glass, too. Actually, it was one of the better pics I'd found at Kapali Karsi. 
a glamorous shot of Hagia Sophia in its cathedral dome, done in exquisite black and white. Something nagged at me about the image, though, and I suddenly realized it wasn't quite the quality reproduction I thought when I purchased it. Apparently, I'd missed an imperfection in its bottom corner, a small pale spot that was growing. My blood froze. The blotch turned to a wave of gray that was quickly consuming Aya Sophia. A drop of water hit my hand and I brushed it off. It was more like oil, really. Slimy. I looked up. The glass in the frame had taken on a purplish sheen, like a soap bubble. Slowly, a dime-sized hole opened near the pane's top, just before the glass itself began melting, spilling onto the couch. <gasps> Riza yelped, frantically scooting back to keep the stuff off her. Kyung! Get in here! I pulled Riza off the couch, looking at the other puddles on the floor, then at the frames and windows missing their glass. By the time Kyung scrambled in, not only was Aya Sophia gone, so was the wall's rosy paint. We all met the next day at the coffee shop down the street. Pretty much the whole lab. Kyung, me, Talia, Mustafa. Mustafa was our token Turk, a roly-poly Mr. Moto type with a huge heart, and the legendary Turkish give-you-the-shirt-off-his-back generosities people were so famous for. Dudley was the only absentee, off taking his kid to the daycare center set up for expats. We'd started without him. Kyung dropped his first bombshell about the shoelace midway through our discussion. We'd been talking about where the thing was found, why it had gone through its strange metamorphosis, and how it might be connected to the bizarre happenings in the office. I don't think we've got the right angle on this shoelace thing. Maybe we should look at it as if it's something that doesn't fit into our world here. Uh, come again? Well, before I go any further, let me just say that I think those tests showed up blank because, well, because there's nothing there to show up. Meaning what? Meaning, I think this thing is old. Very, very, very old. Go on. Well, in the objects we date here, radioactive nuclides decay into other nuclides, right? And sometimes, if they're old enough, into a final, stable, quote-unquote, daughter. Which is what I think we have here. Or sort of, anyway. I think this is beyond that, though. Well beyond it. It's my belief that this thing's actually showing proton decay. Well, you got my attention there. Ditto. Proton decay? Kyung, you talk crazy things. Crazy, yes, Mustafa, but not impossible. The theory of proton decay is perfectly sound. We've just never seen it. It's so rare you'd need to measure our universe worth of protons to detect it. Some might even argue that the universe itself isn't old enough to show it. Right. But what if this thing actually predates our universe? Huh? Oh, come on, Kyung. How about the machine just happens to be broken? It's happened in the past. Talia, the machine was fine before. I even did some controls in between. Talia went on bashing the idea, but I'd been with Kyung a lot longer than her. The man had backward views on a lot of things. He was anal, goofy, sexist, but I'd learned to trust his lab instincts more than my own. They were the best I'd seen in any of my colleagues past or present. I don't know what it was about him, but he could be dead wrong about everything else in the workaday world. Yet when it came to the quantum level, his intuition was impeccable. 
I called off Tali and gave Kyung the vote of confidence in front of everybody, if just to have him spout everything on his mind. We could better break it down with everything on the table. Kyung, you actually think this thing is older than the known universe? Is that even possible? Well, it appears to be made of components that are extremely pure. The bizarre thing is, the only impurities I can find are always one step lower on the periodic table, as might be the case if its protons had actually decayed. Which means... What? That if it predates the universe, it must have come from a previous one. What? Look, if universes are cyclic, and there is a big crunch, where everything comes together before a new Big Bang, maybe the Shule somehow managed to squeeze through that crunch and emerge into ours. From an earlier universe? Where are you getting that from? Well, first off, the thing's mass is all wrong for its size, right? I mean, who knows what it's made of? Nothing I've ever seen. It doesn't react to light the same way. Bombard it with electrons, and I'll bet you a year's salary, its spectrographic fingerprints are going to have you scratching your head. I even found another spectrometer this morning, got the same result. I told you not to go back in there. The lab is off limits to everyone until we can make heads or tails of this. Especially considering how it affected reason me last night. Jeez, guy, I'm no sissy boy, like some people. It was Quake, for God's sake. I needed a second result to confirm the first, and I got it. Well, before that machine went Croak City, too. <sighs> I closed my eyes. The running tab of our little favor to Professor Lavov and company now numbered in the hundreds of thousands of dinero. I hoped insurance might cover it, but we'd had battles with them already, given the pending American military strike. We were on our own if Istanbul suddenly suffered an Iraqi missile attack out of spite for America's invasion, mostly because we'd had months of warning. And now, trying to get them to believe that all six machines had suffered a nervous breakdown was not going to wash. By the way, Nothing's working at the lab right now. No lights, no lab equipment, and, um, I'm afraid your precious rice cooker is dead. No. Same goes for that way cool little TV you got us. The espresso maker, you name it. All the things I'd struggled so hard to bring to the office. All the comforts of home. You're kidding. Everything? Yeah, and the stuff in the refrigerator? I think it's all spoiled, man. Even your beer. You are breaking my heart. How the hell can beer spoil? That took me three weeks and a couple of, um, special Disney videos to trade for them. I don't know, but the stuff's nasty. Even weirder, the shoelace, it's changed again. It's almost solid now, and thin as a razor. I could barely pick it up. It changed again? I don't think it ever stopped changing. Talia interrupted saying none of what Kyung had said made much sense. All of this while she dithered manically with the scrunchie dividing her ponytail. She was Korean too, an adoptee from San Diego, even though she was currently dating a beefy Chinese fellow whose heart seemed as big as his biceps, and whom even I, as a red-blooded heterosexual male, had to admit was rather hot. Years back, Talia had managed to get engaged to a fellow whose mindset wasn't wholly unlike Kyung's. It had not ended well and had made her an even stauncher progressive, more so than me even, being anti-government, anti-corporate, and over the last few months, totally anti-Kyung. At least Riza gave Kyung a little leeway, seeing him more the man-child, spouting whatever was on his mind and not truly meaning to offend. Talia, however, still had too much hurt in her. Look, one of the big cosmic questions today 
is why there's more matter than antimatter in the universe. So what caused the imbalance? Nobody knows. There should be equal amounts, right? Yeah, so? Well, what if this thing was there back then, floating around? What if it did actually come through some big crunch at the close of the previous universe? Maybe it was what upset the isotropy of the early universe, giving matter the winning hand. What's more, maybe it did so purposely. Purposely? Kyung, you've been reading way too much sci-fi. You're saying that little thing has a will of its own? Some prescience? Police. You know, you've said some loony things before, but this... Talia, it is essentially a machine, just like any other, carrying out its particular function. Jeesh, you know, you're a pretty girl, Talia, but really, you should start using your brain more often. You can't just get by on looks, you know. Kyung... I'm just being honest. It's not their fault they can't think straight. It's all that estrogen stuff. That's why a lot of these countries out here don't let them drive, you know. Can I kill him, Paul? You'll have to wait your turn. I suppose one of you bum skulls has a better explanation for why the shoelace is doing this stuff. Give me five minutes. Who knows? Maybe it's just some new army weapon they're trying out on us before they stick it on the Iraqis, changing the color of Saddam's tanks to pink or purple to demoralize the troops. What? How's that going to demoralize their troops? Kyung, she's joking. You are joking, aren't you, Talia? Yes. Kyung, how do you even get to work every day? All right, that's enough. Now, as much as I hate to admit it, let's for the moment say Kyung's right. About the shoelace only. What if it did come through the big crunch? If so, why? Maybe this thing, maybe it has always existed. Moving from one universe to the next. God's little catalyst? Creating the matter-antimatter imbalance each time? Like some divine stirring rod? I don't know, but I've got a feeling that shoelace has nothing to do with God. And what if it did come from a previous universe? That means it was created by the inhabitants of the previous universe, right? So, what's it supposed to be? Some teeny-weeny time capsule? Some message to us like uh, what we sent out on the old Voyager probes? This one exalting the virtues of shoes? But then why is it changing? The Vols did not speak of this. And why right now? That's a good question. Let's say you were going to send some big, earth-shaking message to someone. From the other side, so to speak. Maybe about the meaning of life. Or watching your cholesterol. Or how to make the ultimate spaghetti sauce. You'd send it through, but you couldn't just set the timer for 18 billion years and let it go. What if 18 billion years later it goes off and there's nobody around to see the message? So what would you do? I'd wait till chances were best someone would see it. If it activated in the dead of space, it wouldn't do anybody any good. So I'd rig it to start once it wandered within a strong gravitational field and had lingered there a long, long time. It couldn't just be passing through. What do you think, Mustafa? It is possible. It would need the proper conditions, though. A place where it thought there was a greater chance of life occurring. It might even look for such conditions, like a hunting dog. But still, the question is, why? What is so important that it would come to us like this? Sorry, I'm expecting a call about my visa renewal. Excuse me. Well, I've contacted Sean Richards, an old friend of mine back at UW in the States. He's going to make some international queries, see if anybody's got any ideas. Which could mean we're going to have a lot of company here pretty soon. In the meantime, I don't want anybody going Pons and Fleischmann on us. Got it? No press, no leaks. For now, this is for our eyes only. Capiche? Got it. Sure, Paul. Good. Paul! 
it's Dudley. They found him at the lab. It's horrible. I couldn't think after that. The doctors weren't exactly sure what happened to Dudley. One mumbled something about cell disruption, another collective internal failure, a third, well, he called it sudden leukemia, coupled with bone withering, whatever the hell that was. What they were in agreement on was marveling at how many of his red blood cells couldn't be considered red anymore. Not that they'd jumped the line and turned white, either. They'd become something else entirely, and Dudley's antibodies had gone off the deep end, rejecting his own blood. It was not pretty. At least he was alive, though. For the moment. Thanks to the machine he was hooked up to. His prospects were not good, though. That was another thing the doctors agreed on. It was always the bad stuff. Just why Dudley had returned to the lab didn't dawn on me till later. It was because of that stupid joke we'd pulled on Kyung. He'd gone back to get his kid's toy xylophone for school. Remind me not to have any kids that are musically inclined. Remind me not to play any more jokes either. In fact, remind me to just plain grow the hell up. Of course, I knew the whole time the damn shoelace thing was responsible. I was already of a mind to tear the thing apart if I could. I stayed the rest of the day at the hospital at Dudley's bedside. It was around four in the afternoon, just as visiting hours were ending, that Riza came and forced me out, saying I had to get something to eat. Especially since all I'd had after climbing out of bed that morning was a cup of thick Turkish coffee, which will keep you awake for weeks. She mentioned she had a little surprise for me, too. Something she hoped would get my mind off Dudley and the damn shoelace for at least five minutes. Her favorite restaurant was just down the street, Pita 33, around back of the Blue Mosque. An eatery that was likely more of a treat for her than a real break for me, actually. The restaurant was a two-story deal, with an open terrace on the top and two walls of fish tanks on the bottom floor. Being it was still Ramazan, the Islamic holy month in Turkey, we arrived to find Pita's terrace jammed with locals, all of them waiting for the last buttery sliver of sun to melt into the horizon before they could put the first bits of food in their mouths after another long day of fasting. We took our table. Riza's family always had one permanently reserved there. As waiters scrambled everywhere, squeezing between tightly packed chairs as they carted platters of food to every crowded corner, not a morsel touched by the antsy, sweating Turks, who were fixed on the great blue-tiled clock over the restaurant's biggest fish tank, as though beating on a starter's pistol. One waiter even plopped a beach ball-sized loaf of lavash in front of us. And as Riza blabbed at the fellow in Turkish about whether her quote-unquote special order was ready, I took my fork and jabbed the bread's white top till it deflated to tortilla size. I didn't drink or touch anything yet, not with the Turks drooling so. I felt sorry enough for them as it was, Riza too. Then the restaurant's owner, the Tele Savalis-like Fikri, a family friend of Riza's, approached our table carrying a great blue plate. With a glowing smile, Fikri deposited it in front of me, and Riza gave him a peck on the cheek, beaming. Before me, 
was the equivalent of a 16-inch porterhouse steak, a boneless cut of heaven. And the one thing up to that time, strange as it may sound, that I'd been unable to procure to make my life here in Turkey just that little bit more like home. My mouth hung open, as if in expectation of its ambrosia. Tears nearly welled in my eyes, and with the steak's aroma caressing me, I was suddenly as impatient to eat as the Turks. I reached out and squeezed Riza's hand. You like? I love. Fikri, his work done, disappeared with a wink back into the kitchen, and I turned to join in with the patrons. I too now staring agog at the clock over the fish tank. People always say that at moments like this, when you're waiting to eat a steak that you've been drooling over in your dreams for the last two years, that time drags interminably. They never mention anything about it stopping altogether, though. In fact, the second hand on Fikri's clock had stopped. I wondered if the others had seen it too and awaited pandemonium akin to a riot in the cell block mess. I could tell the clock's unfortunate stopwatch impersonation was just now dawning on the crowd, popularizing the classic double take. Or at least I thought they were staring at the clock. They weren't really. They were staring at the wall behind it, whose paint was quickly changing from tan to bright pink. The crash sounded like it came from the kitchen, one of the complainants' fickery, no doubt. Meanwhile, water began dribbling onto the carpeting nearest me, from the fish tank. Instantly, a little water spout sprung from the central glass panel. Just before all four tanks gave it up, water and fish gushing onto the floor. People scampered about, shouting, Riza too, right in my ear, while car collisions sounded from the street, easily heard now that the great window panes on Fickery's Cafe were melting like candle wax. Chaos seized the day inside and out, car horns first blasting, then unsettlingly silenced. And though what lay outside sounded worse, I figured it safer than Fickery's place and started moving Riza in the general direction. At the last second, with Riza standing there stunned, I ran back to our table, lopped off a piece of my orphan's steak, and stuffed it in my mouth. I couldn't just let the thing go to waste. My taste buds would have never forgiven me. I gave Riza a quick thumbs up as to the meat's integrity, grabbed her hand, and we bolted. As I chewed, pitting that mouthful against memories of the real thing, the first sketchy light bulb clicked on about the shoelace. I was beginning to get an idea of just what it was doing, but why it was doing it, that was another matter. Outside, the world was, let's just say, out of order. Traffic lights were down, the entire block windshield and windowless. The few cars that still remained running were sputtering about on the asphalt, rolling on four flat and shredding tires. Nearby, a tourist bus and two cars had had a dust-up, the occupants of all three now spilling onto the street, looking the way Reese and I currently did, like extras in some schlocky B-movie. Near us, building fronts were turning a kaleidoscope of colors, Istanbul going 60s mod all of a sudden, with bright limes and oranges dominating. A horrible warmth seared the air as well, an unnatural heat given the lateness of the day. In fact, my palms were sweating more than the temperature called for, a signal of some darker instinct in me. And there was something else too, not the rotten banana smell that had been so strong at the lab, though that accosted me as well. It was something beyond that, like my hearing wasn't quite right. Sounds were out of sync. 
Car doors would slam, people would shout, and each time there was an ever so slight delay, like an echo minus its inspiration. Even Reza's Turkish profanities had the teeniest postponement as they sprang from her lips. Nothing felt smooth anymore either. People running or arguing or needling through the mess of cabs and dead trucks did so in segmented bits, run together as if through a kinescope, a kinescope flipping at a thousand pictures a second, but one slightly jumpy just the same. It had me totally jumpy too. Reza, you feeling it? What's wrong with you? Why are you talking like that? So strange. Yeah, the sound thing. You talk like Mrs. Howdy Doody yourself. Huh? Oh, never mind. What's happening, Paul? I don't know, sweetie. Some kind of distortion. It's like the speed of sound has, has changed somehow. It's that damn... I meant to say shoelace, but I never finished. Being taken aback by what others on the street had been gaping at the last ten seconds. The sky. It was changing colors. A spike of orange like a branding iron had pierced the blue, the color bleeding eerily into the clouds around it. Riza, I'm calling Kyung. Damn it! Given a guess, the shoelace's effects seemed to be spreading geometrically. I cursed myself. We should have been smarter. We should have been smarter. It meant more Dudleys out there now. Children, others dying, maybe even Kyung as far as I knew. And that's when it hit home what was really happening to our little bit of world. The shoelace, for whatever reason, was changing the physical laws around us. At the rate it was growing, it would soon sweep over the entire globe, perhaps moving on to even greater objectives. Out beyond anything, any place we could ever run to. And so ends part two of the story, Uniform. The cast for this podcast included Otto Fung as Kyung, Maggie Irvin as Riza, Mince as himself, and I, Michael McGee, was the voice of Paul, a performance which inspired probably the most famous of Edvard Munch's paintings. The music for this podcast came from wonderful performers like Sarah Alexander, Intellect, Lee Mattiford, The Divine Madness, Solace, Rob Vandenberg, Far East Peach, and the incredible William Zeitler. And it was the band Clouseau who wrote and performed the theme for the Theater of the Midnight Sun, called The Copper Locked Nymph. All the song and music titles and the names of the artists heard in this episode can be found on the music page at the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. Most of the music was courtesy of websites such as the Podshow Podsafe Network, GarageBand, and Magnatune. So that's it for this episode. Check back for part three of Uniform coming soon. Or click that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. <laughs>